Father, we are in precarious times uh, with uncertainty abounding. We know that you are the rock, the one we can trust in, the one we can turn to. For your word is eternal. It does not change according to the times or the seasons. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be grounded in your word, that we would not worry or fret what lies ahead, uh, that, Lord, you would lead and guide us in the ways that we walk in this world, that we might not be a stumbling block, but, Lord, also that we would not fail to do your will. And there's so much confusion even in churches to meet, to not to meet, to get together with families and have Thanksgiving or even Christmas. Father, we just don't know uh, what's in store, but we will rest in you. And Father, we also pray that you would enlighten us this morning by your word. Give us some insight into the life of Paul and his relationship with the church of Corinth. And may we learn from it, glean some truths in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, our Father is wonderful. The way that he treats us, if you can remember your parents, how they treated you. Maybe you can recall all the way back. I can remember to when I'm about three years old, and it was usually associated with trauma. I think I had stitches at least three or four times before I was the age of five, and how my parents treated me, especially my mom, how she cared for me during those times. I remember my dad driving me once to the hospital and my face was in the lap of my mother because my brother's bike handlebars didn't have grips and they hit me right next to the eye and they put me in a papoose and they sewed me up. I remember all of that very clearly, but they cared for me. And during that time, they would give me little things to do, a little bit beyond that. They'd give me things to do. My father taught me how to work with my hands and things like that. He was just good. And having children and grandchildren... It's wonderful, especially grandchildren, when they're young, enjoying their company for hours and even giving them back when you're done. That's great. And as they grow, you teach them different things. My wife has taught our girls so many things, like, for instance, how to bake. Uh, She didn't need to do this, but she would allow them to help. Now, I'm going to show you a little clip how the Lord allows us to help him and how we end up helping him. And this is in relation to a grandmother helping her grandson bake. You want to go ahead and show that? Eating the butter, though, okay? Okay. Good job, KK. We have (laughs) time butter. A cup of sugar, okay? Okay, you ready? What is this? Sugar? Sugar. Okay, hold it over. Right. Which case? <laughs> All right. What's next? After the sugar. Oh, geez. it has to be packed in there. So put it in. Don't eat the brown sugar. Oh my gosh, no. Put it in. Oh, yep. 
No, we don't eat chocolate. <laughs> That's right. Okay, ready? No eating eggs. Crack and put it in. There's we a little the more. Butter, though, okay. Are we going back? Okay. There's a little more to that. Uh, she brings out the cookies, and he gets to participate in eating the cookies. You know, this is how God treats us. Are we really helping him, or uh, is he allowing us to be a part of what he is doing? And he's certainly allowing us to be a part of what he is doing. Now, this is what it says in Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. As God... God's fellow workers, in the New King James Version, it says, as God, or excuse me, as workers together with him. So he allows us to assist him in what he is doing. And it certainly brings him joy when we assist him. This little boy and his Nana, which is there, there's a couple of videos on YouTube of him learning how to cook and bake, and he's just a riot to watch but this is a relationship that we have with God he allows us to help him and this is often comparable to our own effectiveness he allows us to participate and we get to receive some of the reward and this is all because he loves us that's the whole reason why he does it uh, did you see the joy on the grandmother's face there and that's the way God looks at us when we're assisting him even though we don't get it quite right even though we kind of mess things up uh, this is how he looks at us. In verse 2 it says, For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So he hears us and he helps us. But there is also this sense of urgency for God's favor and his salvation. An individual can delay or postpone God's grace. We can actually do that. We can resist the grace of God. And... Excuse me. It's not the time for Christians to be consumed with seeking ease and comfort and being self-focused. This urgency here is we need to seek after God's favor. And if we're not saved, we need to seek after his salvation. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow, not the next day. I told this to the young uh, youth guy uh, that was an atheist. I think he's an agnostic. I told you about him. He did come back this last week. Uh, that's great, and we'll see if he continues to come. But today is the day of salvation, even for him, not tomorrow. And he would ask me questions about, like, if he died all of a sudden, what would happen to him? So I told him, you either go to hell or you go to heaven, either one. But there's not a way station in between. And so, you know, he had questions about that. But for everybody, the urgency is now, whether God is helping us in what we're supposed to be doing for him, and certainly he does that, or again, if it is time for salvation. Now, verse 3, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. So Paul and his fellow ministers were very interested in not harming those seeking after God, or even those outside the church. Their doctrine was pure. Their incentives for ministry were eternal and not temporal. They placed the care of others over personal need, and Paul was willing to forego a salary, which he was entitled to, according to Scripture. He was willing to have others be more prominent, and he worked hard and endured many hardships, which he lists here in verses 4 through 10. He says, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance. This means patient continuance 
in troubles or persecutions, in hardships, being in need, and in distresses, which means anguish, torment, or agony, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Now this is the epitome of a life that is lived for Christ. He makes these comparisons and contrasts here. And and for anyone who might be undergoing persecution, there is hope for them because they have the eternal perspective. They don't have the perspective of someone here strictly on earth. And I ask myself, as we should all, have I endured these things for the gospel? All of us. It's not even close. We haven't even come close to enduring any of this. Uh, even uh, taking a flight uh, to go to Africa or go going to Cambodia or any of those places that we've gone on before, sometimes flights were delayed, the next flight was missed, and you had to wait several hours, and that's the worst of it uh, that you have to go through. Or you get to the country that you're wanting to go to, and uh, you get a little stomach flu, so to speak, a little dysentery, and that's the worst of it. No one that I know of, uh, although there are some in the Calvary Chapel system, we have not been imprisoned. Uh, in these foreign countries. We've not been hungry by any stretch of the imagination. You go to some of these foreign countries and you can have breakfast for a buck or two bucks and it's all you can eat and it doesn't end. Uh, and there's transportation, there's protection from the elements. We don't have to worry about wild animal or beasts out there and fear for our lives. And Paul went through all of this. And so when we ask such a question, we see our inadequacies. We see not... Excuse me. We see not how selfless we have been for the Gospels, but how selfish. We want to do it according to our schedule, in our way, with our comfort in mind. Where are we going to stay? What are we going to do? How are we going to eat? And Paul was just on the road, and he would head from one place to another, not knowing exactly what he would run into. And so Paul gave up everything and endured everything in this life, to follow Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that we fall into condemnation for what we haven't suffered or accomplished for Christ. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but it will cause humility to rise and pride to be subdued when we see what Paul went through, and he encourages us to follow him as he follows Christ. So as we have the opportunity to share Christ, if we fall into hardship like this or beatings or whatever it might be, of course, the chance of that, I think, is slim, but if we do... We're just to endure it as Paul endured this. Now, going on in verse 11, Paul expresses his affection for the people in Corinth. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. And even though... Many were rejecting Paul and his work in the church in Corinth. 
He still cared for them, and he expressed this to him. He could have been bitter. <clears throat> he could have walked away. He could have quit. He could have abandoned his post as a minister of the gospel. We've already read several of the things that he went through, you know, and how there were factions inside the church there in First Corinthians. But, you know, doing ministry is never easy if you do it right. Uh, if you do it wrong, well, it, you might just be able to slide, and the enemy is not so concerned about those who do it wrong. He's concerned with those who would do it correctly. Now, I think most pastors in this country, even throughout the world, they're doing it correctly. But there are some discouragements along the way. I want to give you some statistics, not just pastors, but there are those who serve in ministry uh, that may not be pastors, but serve nonetheless, and they may be experienced the same thing. But here's some statistics on pastors and churches. 80% of pastors believe the pastoral ministry has negatively affected their families. 80%. Only 50% of pastors felt that the education they received adequately prepared them for ministry. Most pastors rely on books and conferences as their primary source of continuing education. And that is mine as well. At any given time, 75% of pastors in America want to quit. Uh, I'm not there today, just to let you know. Uh, more than 2,000 pastors are leaving the ministry each month. And concerning churches, 4,000 new churches begin each year and 7,000 churches close. Over 1,500 pastors left the ministry every month last year, and this was over a decade ago, but I'm sure the same statistics hold. Over 1,300 pastors were terminated by the local church, are terminated by the local church each month, many without cause, and over 3,500 people a day left the church last year. Now, you can fill in the blanks why people leave churches. It, it could be because of an offense. I've expressed to all of you in here before, if you haven't been here long enough, you'll eventually be offended. I apologize for that, kind of. But, uh, you know, that's just the way things go. Because when we listen to the scriptures, when we read them, the body gets offended. The flesh doesn't like it at all. And so the person who brings the offensive message, hopefully in a non-offensive way, well, you're going to be offended no matter what. I don't want to hear that. My flesh doesn't like that. And so this is the case. And when somebody's supposed to deliver an unpleasant message, they become the focal point of whatever that message is, and the person either gets offended or doesn't want to listen anymore and does their own thing. And, of course, <clears throat> this doesn't abide well for those who would push away humility, like understanding what repentance is all about. And even though Paul was sent to the church in Corinth, his ministry was difficult, as we can see from these epistles to the Corinthians. But Paul takes the time to express his love for them. But he indicates they are withholding love from him. And at the end of this chapter, he leaves the people of Corinth with some exhortations. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, or what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And of course, these are six rhetorical questions. The answer is none or nothing. And he, I'm going to read through them again. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, could you imagine the Jewish temple 
if you guys, I think most of you know about the Jewish temple and how it was set up. You had the court of the Gentiles, which is on the outside. You had the court of the women. You had the court in which the sacrifices were brought. And you had to be a devout Jew to get in there. Uh, you could offer your sacrifice, but you were not allowed to go inside the temple. Only the priests, the Levites, could go in there daily and make sure the <clears throat> the lampstand was lit and the showbread was on the right-hand side as you walked in. And there was one loaf for each of the 12 tribes. The altar of incense was before the curtain, which was in the front. And then you had the curtain and the Holy of Holies behind that in which the Ark of the Covenant was found. And it would be dark in there. There's nothing light. Uh, there's no artificial light that they had at that time. There might have been windows way up high, but it was certainly more of a dark area. The only light inside of the tabernacle itself or the temple, both, was the lampstand that was on the left-hand side as you walked in. And Now, can you imagine a Gentile showing up and going into where the sacrifice was being alter, uh, offered on the altar there? They would have gone berserk, apoplectic. They would have grabbed the person and killed them if anybody who was a Gentile walked in or anybody that was uncircumcised if they went in there. And the women weren't allowed to go in there either. And they were very strict about this. And so God, uh, through Paul, makes these arguments. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Could you imagine somebody bringing an idol into the temple and setting it up. Now, we know that in Daniel, this is the abomination which makes desolate, which is going to be a future event, and they will absolutely not accept that, and they will become angry, and they will fight to stop anything like that at all, and that's why he says, we are the temple of the living God. So with us, on the inside, we are not to commingle things that unbelievers hold to or idols. We are to remain pure, and God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So he wants this sanctification process where we are taken from the world, and we are separated from the world. Not that we leave the world. We are in the world. We just don't buy into their programs, their thoughts, their teachings, their ways. We're not to love the ways of the world. We're to forsake those. And also the ways of unbelievers. Now, in our families, most of us probably have somebody who is an unbeliever that doesn't want to follow Christ, wants nothing to do with Christ. And we do not separate with them because they are our mission field. But we do not accept what they believe as far as the Bible is concerned. I think I've mentioned before in the past, one of my aunts, she has now passed away, she grew up in the church. My grandmother was a devout uh, believer, Baptist, Southern Baptist. Both of my grandmothers were. <clears throat> and they would read their Bibles. They would go to church. Uh, my one grandmother would listen to J. Vernon McGee on the radio. I, I think I told you before, and she would smoke her Salem cigarettes as she was listening uh, to the uh, J. Vernon McGee program. She had her chair. She lived with us for a while, and I, I remember that. And my other grandmother, you know, I, I went and played piano once in her church. M- miserable failure at it at a young age. But, uh, you know, I, I remember these things that they were there. They were just simply devout, and it, it was something that they would set apart. They were um, sanctified for the Lord as far as they knew what was best. That's what they followed. But we are to make sure that we do not join together with those in our households 
as far as their beliefs and practices, that are unbelievers. We are to stick to what we know to be true. We are not to engage in immoral behavior that they might engage in. And the people of Corinth had joined themselves together with unbelievers. Unbelievers were coming into the church, which is good because they could get the gospel, but they were adopting what they believed as well. Uh, they were taking liberty with uh, sexual immorality. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a man had his father's wife, and they needed to stop that kind of behavior. But in the context that is delivered to these people here in Corinth, and also for us today, this context stands out for us as meaning, do not marry an unbeliever. We, we have no fellowship with an unbeliever. Now, a number of times people have come for premarital counseling, and uh, there was one time, by the time I got done with the first session, they weren't getting married anymore. Uh, there was another time uh, I got a phone call from a woman. I asked her if she was a believer. She said yes. I asked if her fiancé was a believer. She said no. I said, well, I, I can't marry the two of you. And she said, well, he'll come around. I love him. And the Lord says, don't do it. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. And again, he asked those six questions. What fellowship is there with light and darkness? We don't have anything in common with unbelievers in the way that they live their lives in this world. So he says, don't do it. It also applies for us in this day and age in context to business. We're not to enter into a business relationship, uh, partners, so to speak, with somebody who's an unbeliever. And what if the person doesn't think the IRS is to be feared, and you do? Uh, you're going to have some conflict there. What about the training of employees? <clears throat> you know, Scripture talks about slaves and masters. In our context today, it would be employers and employees and how we're to treat them fairly. And somebody who is of the world may not necessarily do that. And that would cause you to violate your conscience if they said, well, we're not going to pay them this week, or we're going to lie to them, or we're not going to treat them well. And we're going to hide this fact from the unemployment agency. And just all of those things, you want to make sure you're following the rules, laws, and regulations that are the labor board's prerogative to enforce. And so there's going to be a conflict if we marry somebody who is an unbeliever, if we are believers, or if we enter into a business contract with somebody who is an unbeliever and we are believers. And it should also apply to adopting beliefs and habits of unbelievers, especially of those whom we have close relationships with. If I were to do that, for instance, my aunt who believed in reincarnation, she would say, well, yeah, that's what I believe. And I'm not supposed to say, well, you're older, I'm supposed to respect you, and I would agree with that as well. And Scripture says, no, it's appointed unto man once to die and then face judgment. There is no do-overs. There is no second guesses. The cults teach that. Whether it's Mormonism, excuse me, or the Jehovah Witnesses. And I've expressed this before, but I want to remind you of this. If you have a Jehovah Witness come to your door, I don't know if they're doing that with COVID going on, but when this is all over, they'll come back to your door and they'll teach that everybody gets a second chance when the resurrection takes place. My response to that is, then why should I even choose? I can do what I want to here if I get a second chance. But scripture says you don't get a second chance. And see, we live by the Bible, not by what somebody else says, even if we respect who they are because of their age or familial relationship. We want to make sure we're sticking to what God says. We don't want to mingle ourselves 
with the world. And it's obvious that the believers in Corinth Corinth had unbelievers in the church and that they were being allowed to influence doctrine and practices. And that's why Paul writes, come out from them, be separate, says the Lord. Uh, Scripture admonishes us to make friends with, to not make friends with someone who is angry all the time for this very reason, that we might adopt their beliefs and habits. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 24 through 25 says, Do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. Years ago, I was in Home Depot. Before we had to stand six feet apart, you know, there would be lots of people in there, and they'd be in the lines. And this one guy, you could tell he was an angry man. There must have been 20 people standing around waiting for a cashier, and he just starts lighting off. All these people, and and everybody kind of looks at him like, what's your problem, buddy? You know, And, and he was just angry, was complaining about everything, and he wanted to make sure everybody knew about it. And you could tell everybody was kind of stepping back a little bit from this guy. Like, what's this guy going to do? We're not to make friends with people like that who are always angry, always complaining. Now, if you have a fellow brother or sister in the Lord and they're like that, you don't back away like this. You step forward and you say, listen to me. This is what scripture says. You are to put away all anger, hatred, wrath, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. All of those things were to put those away. And you'd bring an exhortation, an admonishment, or even a rebuke if they're stumbling others who are around because others will pick up that habit even in the church. And that would not be good. Then you have infighting, you have dissensions, factions, envying, and all of that stuff. And those are all the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. So the same would be true with those holding opposing views to God. If we allow them just to reside in the church or close to us, we have them as intimate friends, we will start adopting what they choose as far as their habits and beliefs. And I can remember this, my, one of my first jobs that I had. <clears throat> I was in high school, and uh, I was called to this apartment complex. We knew some people, and they let me do a little bit of maintenance around there, building maintenance, changing plugs and garbage disposals and wash, dishwashers, things like that, just attending to specific tasks around the apartment complexes. And I would go from place to place, and I'd, like I'd pull out a garbage disposal, and we'd look at it, or we'd pull out some type of fan that was in the, one of the apartments, and I would take it to the guy. His name was Bob. Bob would take these things and he would start looking at them and he'd open his yellow toolbox and he'd pull out these tools and he'd start fiddling with it and I would be watching him. He would have me right there so I'd watch and learn how to fix these things. And as he would do that, now he was a retired train engineer. He used to run the trains and he had an attitude, a little bit of an attitude. And as he got on these things that would be on the workbench, he would start cussing at them. And you get the, you know, and if it couldn't be fixed with a hammer, it couldn't be fixed at all, you know, and and that's how he would look at these things. And probably the more frustrated he got, if he couldn't fix it, the more profuse the profanity became. And I found myself later, I would grab some of the same little machines or whatever it was. I'd put it on the, the bench there and I couldn't get it fixed right. And I found myself starting to profane. It's like, this does nothing for me, you know. And, and I finally came to the realization, like, you dummy, 
You don't have to cuss at it to get it to work better. You're just frustrating yourself. And so I picked it up from him, but I, I got rid of it. I didn't continue with that. So the importance, if you have intimate friends that are unbelievers, great. They're your mission field. But don't adopt what they adopt. Don't practice what they practice. <clears throat> A lot of times, unbelievers, especially in the realm of men, I don't think women do this too much, but men will tell uh, off-color jokes. And they'll sit there, laugh. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> Is that what you're supposed to do? Are you supposed to not laugh? What do you say? Maybe you just walk away. You don't participate with that. And then they all look at you like, where are you going? Oh, you missed a goody two shoes, most holier than thou. Is that, that what you think? Well, that's a little bit of persecution because you want to follow Christ. You want to keep things pure. You don't want to engage in that type of stuff. So these are real practical steps that we can look at and say, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to follow in their ways. I'm supposed to step aside when I see this type of behavior taking place. And especially for the Corinthian church, the unbelievers that were there, they were influencing the people inside the church, and we're not supposed to let unbelievers influence us, whether it's in relationships, business, or even in marriage. So for an application here, I would offer you a challenge today. Talk to someone, anyone outside the church that's an unbeliever and just ask them what they believe about God randomly. And some people have a hard time doing this. I don't have a hard time doing it where you just walk up to somebody and you know who they are, their, their family say, you know, uh, my pastor gave me a homework assignment. Uh, He wanted me to ask you what you believe about God. Do you have any beliefs about God? Now, if you ask it in that fashion, it's usually non-threatening and now if they return and say well who wants to know say my pastor wants to know you come back and you can tell me about this but i would like to hear your interactions and and you don't want to be pejorative or judgmental or negative or harsh or even disagreeable like if they say what they believe and you go you believe that that's not really going to engender itself to a good conversation you just say, oh, that's, that's interesting. And you never know where a conversation like that might leave. Well, say it's somebody who knows you're a believer and you've been a believer for years or even decades and they know that you are and they know where you stand. Uh, refresh the conversation. Say, you know, it's been a long time since I've asked you this, but what, what are your thoughts about God? Who do you think he is? <clears throat> and you'll have to trust me in my experience. Most people want to talk about God. Now, an atheist will even engage you about God. They will say, he doesn't exist. What is it you believe? You'll find yourself being quite entertained if you handle the conversation correctly. And who knows? The person might even start thinking about God and ask you questions in return. It's an intellectual exercise, but it's also a spiritual exercise. Now, if you don't know what you believe... It's going to be a little rough. But if you know what you believe, for instance, the basics of the Christian faith, we all die. We're all under a curse. We can get out from under that curse because God loved us. Romans 10, 9, and 10, to get out from under the curse, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised from the dead. You will be saved. So if you have those basics down, great. If they want to know more, bring them to church. I'll talk to them. 
Take them to Monday night Bible study. If they're a man, take them to the morning study. If they're a woman, call Sandy or Patty or anyone who knows what's going on. Or, or Sarah. You can call Sarah or Cheryl. You can call them and transfer them off. You know what a relay race is? You get the baton at first, right? You're running, you're running, and you know somebody who's maybe fresh in front of you, and they know a little bit more, pass the baton to them. Give the life of the individual to someone else. And by the time they make the round, the four corners or the four bends in the raceway, who knows, they might be saved by that time. So that's my encouragement to you, a little bit of a challenge there. Uh, and I would love to hear some stories next week if you've done this. And I, for some, it makes them a little nervous. Like, really, you want me to talk to somebody? Yeah. I want you to talk to somebody. I want you to find the most pagan person out there that you know or somebody who's just on the fence and talk to them what they believe about God. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 here, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Now, when somebody says be perfect, you say, what? Be perfect? How am I supposed to be perfect? There's only a few that are perfect. The Trinity, my wife, those are the few that are perfect. <clears throat> but how, how do you perfect, how, how do you arrive at holiness and be perfect in the holiness? How do you do that? Now, we understand that we cannot divest ourselves of the sinful nature which is on the inside. We can't do that. We can't just rip it out of ourselves and set it to the side. God says, no, I'm going to destroy that body and make a new one for us. So only he can do that. But he gives us the exhortation here to perfect holiness, and our motivation is because we reverence God. So how do we do this in our actions and thoughts? How do we perfect holiness? Well, the first thing would be Ten Commandments, right? If we have the Ten Commandments down without looking them up, And where do we look them up? We look them up in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. We have them in those two places. And they're repeated here and there in the uh, rest of the Bible, but that's where we would go. Now, if you have the Ten Commandments down, like the first one, have no other gods before me. Okay, that's a good one. That's walking in your actions and thoughts, knowing who God is, that there's no other gods besides him. Or make a graven image. We're not supposed to make a graven image. Or take God's name in vain. Stop cussing. Scripture says that. Colossians 3.8 as well. A few other places in Scripture. We're to make sure that our words are pure. And that's possible uh, to do that. You don't have to um, cuss at the machine on your workbench if it's not working right. You can just say, bless me, Lord, this day as you're digging into that thing. And you'd be surprised. He will. And then you're to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, Jesus is our Sabbath day's rest. Saturday is the Sabbath. We are not Jews, although we come from the Jewish belief system, the Old Testament. Our Sabbath, so to speak, is Christ. He is our rest. Now, if you wanted to say, well, Sunday is a new Sabbath, <clears throat> no, I would just Hebrews use Hebrews 10.25, do not forsake the gathering of the brethren uh, together, as is the habit of some. And whether that's on Sunday or during the week or on Zoom, whatever it might be, if we have an opportunity to do that, we're to do that. <clears throat> so the next five, <clears throat> honor your mother and father, your father and mother. 
Now, maybe your father and mother are not currently alive, but you can honor their memory and how you speak about them. Uh, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, steal, covet, or bear false witness against your neighbor. We're not, basically it means do not lie. And so if we just follow the Ten Commandments, we're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to covet that which somebody else has. Uh, We're not supposed to commit adultery or to steal. I think there's been a lot of theft going on over this last year, people just breaking into buildings and uh, removing the contents on the inside. Did you hear that Governor DeSantis in Florida wants to make that an offense punishable by the owner shooting the individual coming in? Did you hear about that? Uh, yeah, he, he said if there is a riot within 500 feet of your establishment and people break in in order to steal stuff, he wants to make it a law that you can shoot them on site. Uh, there's another two other parts to this law. If you are on a freeway and people come onto the freeway or roadway and they prevent you from moving in your car and they start banging on your car, he doesn't want to hold those people accountable who are in fear of their life of running over, injuring, or even killing somebody in their car if they try to get out of there. That's another one that he wants to do. It's, it's, it's like, wow, you're actually able to defend yourself uh, if this stuff is going on, and I could go on about that, but I'm going to get back to the scripture here. I thought that was a, a good little news blurb. So the, these idea are this idea of keeping the Ten Commandments. That start with that, and we will perfect holiness if we keep the Ten Commandments. Of course, those are narrowed down into two: love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In the New Testament. But also, these are things that we are supposed to do and not do in the Ten Commandments. Well, the same thing applies in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, sexual immorality, avoid fornication and adultery, Uh, impurity and debauchery, and debauchery is a constant sexual desire that you're carrying around, idolatry and witchcraft. Witchcraft is uh, pharmakia, which is drugs, avoid drugs for the recreational purposes. Uh, hatred, discord or debate and strife, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, which is strife or friction between individuals, uh, sedition or heresies, were to make sure we understand what Scripture teaches and not deviate from it, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And he says, and the like, which means the list is not finished. There are several other things that you could add to that. And if you have the Spirit of God, you will immediately know what those things are. If you carry with you the Spirit of God and you enter into some type of situation where there's sinful behavior taking place, you know immediately, maybe I should turn from this. And if we follow these examples, then we will perfect holiness. Now, also, it could be in the attitude of the heart. And I believe that's where it all begins. For instance, the attitudes, the be attitudes in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, there's beatitudes in Luke and Matthew. One of them states that it could be the lowly in spirit, the humble. And it could also mean in the other version, those who are actually poor that don't have a lot of money. Uh, we could be lowly in spirit. And blessed are those who mourn. They mourn for others who are around them. Blessed are the meek. And all this emerges from the attitude of the heart. Person who is meek doesn't mean weak. It simply means patient, humble, and gentle. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When will there be a leader that will do what is right? You know, we we look at that, right? And we're in the middle of it. Uh, Blessed are the merciful, extending undeserved grace. Those who don't deserve any help or kindness whatsoever, 
you decide you're going to help them. And when somebody finds themselves in that situation, it's they're probably in that situation because they did it to themselves. It's not that somebody else did it to them. Yeah, I always think of the people that are homeless. Um, and I saw several this last week. You know, they're on the street corner and they're wanting some money of some kind. And I, I saw this one uh, placard that says, uh, my wife told, no, my girlfriend told me to choose between my dog or her. And he's on the street with his dog. Uh, you know, and, and you see things like that and go, well, you probably did this to yourself, buddy, that you're on the street all by yourself. And why don't you have a job? And, you know, that's the unmerciful side. The merciful side would say, let me get you some food and food for your dog as well. Uh, and, of course, I've been tested and I don't have much mercy, so I don't go there very often unless the Lord really prompts me to. That's just my nature on the inside. But you, you look at somebody like that, that they don't deserve help. They got themselves in the situation and they need to lie in their bed. You made your bed, you got to lay in it, right? You've heard that little colloquialism which is out there. But it's being merciful to those who don't deserve mercy. God is pleased with that. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart. We keep our hearts pure on the inside. Blessed are the peacemakers. You want to make sure that there is peace amongst family or friends. You don't come in and stir it up. You don't say phrases or statements that will just get people and goad them. You guys know what a goad is? Uh, I went to, you know where Masi Nissan is in El Cajon? That was a slaughterhouse before in high school, bachelor survival, went there and, uh, they were killing cows. They wanted us to get the experience of going to a slaughterhouse and they had this prod and this prod was, it looked like an old broom handle with a nail in the end of it and it had a wire that was plugged in to the nail and they would prod the cattle to get them to go up the chute. It's a, a prod like that. If you're a peacemaker, you don't prod people and get them to start getting angry. And I've seen that happen before where people just walk in and they just want to stir it up. You know, it could be a pond that all the sediment has gone down and it's, it's silt on the bottom and it's just real calm. Somebody takes a stick and sticks it in there and roils up the water. And we can do that easily with the words of our mouth with somebody who's there. Uh, you don't bring up certain subjects at Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? Politics or religion. Well, if you can bring it up in the right way, hopefully you won't stir it up. But sometimes it's impossible. And so you just don't stick the stick in the water and and mix it up. So blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's the individual and the inside. They have decided they're going to do what's right, and they're persecuted because of it. And so it's both the outward action and the inward thought habit that God says, if you perfect those, you will perfect holiness. Now, again, I, I want to say this, that we are never going to be rid of sin completely, but we're to be constantly working at it. And even Micah 6.8 says, we are to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. If we do those things, we are perfecting holiness. Now, Paul adds three more things that I've already given to what I have already given you. And they are uh, wrong nobody, do not corrupt anyone, and do not exploit anyone. In other words, do no harm, encourage someone 
to do wrong is to corrupt them and also to use somebody for your own personal gain, that is to exploit someone. Paul says this in verse 2, Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited or defrauded no one. So there will be two sides to the Christian walk. There will be getting rid of evil and continually seeking to do good. So it, it's a, a two-lane highway. We want to make sure we're working at both of those to perfect holiness. Verse 3, I do not say this to commend you. Uh, say what? That we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. Apparently, in the church of Corinth, they have wronged people, they have corrupted people, and they have exploited them. That's why he says, I do not say this to condemn you. In other words, you've done the act, but I'm not saying it to make sure you feel bad for what's going on. He goes on to say, I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. Now, wait. Isn't this a church that had the factions that were taking each other to court, that were misusing the gifts of the Spirit, that were marrying and divorcing and remarrying remarrying, and also having sexual immorality going on? And he says, I am just overflowing with joy. My joy knows no bounds for you guys. See, he's expressing his love while condemning the behavior. Now, going on with this in verse 5, well, Paul had been bold in his criticism of the Corinthian church, but now he is bold in his praise for them. Verse 5 says, For when we came to Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears from within, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. So previously, Paul had sent a letter, although it was painful, and it did a tremendous amount of good. And it and Paul talked about Titus. He was looking for Titus, remember, and he left Troas, and he couldn't find him. Well, Titus went to the church in Corinth, and he delivered Paul's letter, and they were willing to turn around from what they had been practicing. And it reminds me of a proverb, you know, where you tell something to someone that they need to know. You don't necessarily want to do it, but you're going to tell them because it's going to benefit them, and you know it's going to have one of two effects. It's either going to offend them, or it's going to cause them to humble themselves and correct their behavior. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So the person who really doesn't care about you is going to use flattery. They're going to tell you how wonderful you are. Oh, it's okay. Go ahead. They're going to encourage you in doing that which is wrong. But somebody who is a friend that knows the Lord, knows his word, is going to say, you ought not to do this. You ought to turn around from this. You want to marry that guy? I don't think he's a believer. I think you ought to turn from this. All of those things are good, even though they may not turn out so well. And Proverbs 17, verse 10 says, A rebuke impresses a man of discernment more than a hundred lashes of a fool. So if you have somebody with a, a, a open, supple, tender heart, 
and you deliver to them a rebuke, it has more of a painful effect on the inside than giving a fool 100 lashes. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not too thrilled with having a 100 lashes. I'm not too thrilled with a rebuke either. But a rebuke will have more an effect on the inside. I remember our uh, kids when they were growing up, just the fact they knew that I was not happy with them would hurt them sometimes more than any little paddle that I could bring in. We we always use a spoon one time, and we use the uh, rod of correction to the seat of understanding, so to speak, <clears throat> and and that was it. It was nothing more. Um, but you can often use your influence, if you're walking with the Lord, to just simply say, you know, this is not right, and you need to change your behavior. That can have more an effect on somebody who is receptive than giving a beating on the outside. As a matter of fact, I would say somebody who is receptive to that would probably prefer the beating rather than receiving the rebuke. So someone who really loves you, they might hurt you with words and are willing to do so, but they mean well. So let's keep that in mind. Verse 8, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. So Paul was conflicted. He was probably going in his mind saying, maybe I was just too harsh on him. Oh dear, you know, what am I going to do? And he's probably wringing his hands. They're going to reject this for sure. The words I have written will push them away. And yet it had the opposite effect, which made him very happy, full of joy. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, remember when Peter wept bitterly at the rejection of Jesus Christ? I don't know the man, and he started cussing, and he went away and wept bitterly for what had happened. And also in James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, it says, Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning, your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Or King David, uh, in Psalm 6, verse 6 and 7, I am worn out from groaning all night long. I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of my foes. And so there's this attitude of the heart on the inside that wells up. And it is not directed towards self, like being sorrowful that you've gotten yourself in this situation. It's directed towards God and how we have dishonored God or rejected God or sinned against God. One way to bring focus on this is Judas. Remember Judas? says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 3, about that time Judas, who betrayed him when he saw that Jesus had been condemned to die, changed his mind and deeply regretted what he had done and brought back the money to the chief priests and other Jewish leaders. Now, why did he bring back the money? He wanted to assuage his guilt and say, you know, he, he wanted to lessen his guilt. Here, take this money back. I, I shouldn't have received it. He was focused on himself, not what happened to Christ. Christ was crucified. 
he, he didn't go and say, oh, God, what have I done to your son, your one and only son? I have sinned against you and you alone. He didn't do that. He said, you know, I made a mistake here and I feel bad for it. So I want to recompense this. And this is what we do. If it's worldly sorrow, we want to fix it. If it's godly sorrow, we know we can't fix it. Only God can fix it. And it's only against him that we have sinned. And, of course, they told Judas, uh, even though he had betrayed an innocent man, they said to him, well, that's your problem. That's not our problem. That's your problem. And, of course, later the regret drove him to kill himself to get rid of the feeling on the inside. And Now, godly sorrow wouldn't do that. Godly sorrow wouldn't drive a person to commit suicide. And by the way, I, I listened to uh, Augustine in his book, The City of God, and he has a long section on suicide in there. It's pretty insightful the way he talked about it. But anyhow, I digress. If we have godly sorrow, we will return. It will return us to God, that repentance which is there. Worldly sorrow, Judas went and hung himself. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, uh, turning away from Satan, sin, the ways of the world. Worldly sorrow does not lead us back to Jesus. It produces in us a feeling of regret, and there usually is no changing of the sinful ways. Godly sorrow produces a fear of sin, like, no, I'm not going to do that. I might fall into sin. Godly sorrow produces a zeal towards God. I need to follow after Jesus and no one else. And then the sorrow removes, godly sorrow removes guilt. That guilt goes away where if somebody has worldly sorrow or worldly regret, they carry with that, that with them that guilt, and they can carry it for years, and it's never resolved, it's never taken away. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, verse 11. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote you, or wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged, in addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. In other words, Paul boasted, but he wasn't quite sure if his boast was going to be followed through with or lived up to. He wasn't sure if the believers would have received the letter, but obviously they did. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you too, Titus, has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I have complete confidence in you. So see, they were completely sinners, but Paul loved them and was encouraged by them and let them know. So application here, God lets us minister with him, just like the child baking. One little illustration on this, Chuck Smith, uh, of course, the founder of Calvary Chapel, he used to tell a story of his grandson, how he would be building a fence and grandson would come out and want to help build the fence. So he gave him a nail, he drove it into a piece of wood, gave him a hammer, and he told him, go ahead, drive that hammer and that nail into that wood. And so he went back in, told his mom, guess what, mom, I helped grandpa build the fence. And all he did was out there hammering away and so god lets us minister with him ministry to others can be difficult uh, 
outcome is never certain. There are difficulties and disagreements along the way. And we are to love those who are disobedient believers, just like Paul was loving the Corinthian church and the people in it. Uh, He expressed his love to them over and over. And we have a promise of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God. Therefore, we are to purify ourselves, the sanctification process. There is the positional sanctification. We are justified, made right, declared right in the sight of God. We have an experiential sanctification, walking daily, maturity in Christ. And we have the ultimate. It's glorification. We're going to be with Christ, set apart for him with a new body. And so we can never be sure if we offer correction, if it will be received. But, oh, the joy if repentance is realized. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul and his ministry to the people in Corinth, how they were blowing it left and right, but he reaffirmed his love for them. I would ask, Lord, that you would help us to follow Paul as he follows you. All the examples that he has given here, I pray, Lord, that we would be able to remember them, to put them into practice, to perfect holiness. And may this be all for your glory and not for any personal gain of ours. May you be lifted up. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things and everyone said, Amen.